Welcome to Reed Scholars Live. I'm your host, Mary Fleming, current president of Reed Scholars and practicing OBGYN. Reed Scholars is an organization composed of physicians, dentists, and mental health specialists committed to collective action to achieve health equity. Our podcast is a platform to have conversations about innovative solutions to narrow the gap of health equity. With that being said, let's talk health equity. Today's guest is fourth year medical student, Angela Zhang. She's originally from Seattle, but now she attends the Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University. Currently, she's midway through a year-long fellowship with her school's Office of Diversity and Multicultural Affairs, which involves support of minoritized trainees, faculty, and work around anti-racism and health justice. She is the producer and host of the podcast, Not Built for Us, a series of audio essays about the ways in which structures and spaces keep medicine inequitable. Currently, Angela has plans to move on to a career in medicine, pediatrics, and gastroenterology, which is an interesting combination she was just telling me about. Um, So we look forward to hearing more about that in the future. Um, Anything that I missed or you'd like to add? Uh, No, I think you pretty much got it. Thanks for having me. Um, And so I initially met uh, Angela through another Reed Scholar, uh, Camila Wood, and she mentioned to me that Angela was podcasting, so I would um, encourage you all to check out Angela's podcast, and I'll I'll put the link in the listen notes. Um, And the the conversation that she was really talking about was around race and medical education, to put it succinctly. It's, it's, um, she talks a lot about a lot of things, so, um, but uh, and, and Camila thought it might be interesting to um, have Angela on the podcast to talk a little bit more about medical education and how um, we are teaching our medical students and trainees across the board, but in this particular case, our medical students. Um, and, and, and not just teaching, but I feel like inserting uh, racial bias in, in some cases into our curriculum. Um, so I'd like to pause there and kind of have Angela tell us, you know, what initially sparked your curiosity into this subject and, you know, how did that turn into, you know, wanting to podcast about health equity and and education and bias and um, just kind of what led you to that particular part of your journey? Yeah, so I started at Brown in 2016. I think looking back, I'm surprised. I didn't know that Brown has a social justice and progressive bent. Um, and that really does percolate over to the medical school culture. And I was drawn to Brown because of the passion for community engagement, responsible community engagement, and social justice that was evident even on the interview day. Um, and that, you know, separately has really shown itself to be a huge strength here. I think I got really lucky in that um, there's actually a lot of scholars on the Brown campus working on um, this whole issue of how we view race in medicine, which we can get further into. Um, you know, I came into medicine, as many people do, interested in quote-unquote health disparities and working with um, under-resourced communities. And I think just didn't find, it was hard because I feel like I didn't, I was doing all these different community service activities, like I do medical affidavits for asylum seekers, and I'm really interested in working with like incarcerated refugee populations, or incarcerated and refugee populations, and LGBTQ advocacy and climate advocacy, and I think I'm really lucky to be able to work on all of those things, and I just couldn't help but feel that they were really surface level solutions. Um, and that by talking about disparities, like I just felt like I kept hearing lecture after lecture about the fact that this disparity exists. And 
a solution would be like a community level solution that targeted some sort of behavior, uh, like food deserts or eating or exercise. And, you know, don't get me wrong, those are obviously so important for people who are living and struggling with these things right now. But I just started to notice how built into the system racism and other forms of oppression really are. Um, And a mentor of mine, she also has a podcast about women and neurology um, and found it to be a really valuable way to disseminate information to trainees. Um, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like an audio journal club. I think it's exciting mm-hmm. to think about new multimedia and maybe someone doesn't have time to read the five page paper, but does have time to listen to a half hour episode and vice versa. Right. So I think being able to branch into different modes of learning has been a really interesting and I think very effective way um, to talk about this topic. Definitely. And I think, um, you know, when I was listening to your podcast, um, one of the interesting examples that you shared, so (laughs) just, no, you're okay. Um, So just when we start talking about race in general, so, I mean, of course, it's not the, the, the purpose of this particular podcast is not to talk about race in general, but one of the things you did was to re-examine the definition of what race is and what does it mean and that the definition is constantly evolving and what it means here is not necessarily what it means in different countries and different contexts. Um, And when we talk about that and then when we talk about how we're educating people around taking care of other people and that so much of, um, I shouldn't say so much of it, there is a part of our training that contextualizes symptoms and disease processes correlating to race and disparities, right? Um, When it is a a marker or a confounder for something else. And as you were talking about, a lot of our interventions are really are super high level and they're not really um, looking at how we inject bias into the, the patient-doctor interaction. And I think for a lot of us, and me, myself included, is trying to understand how do we uh, address that. And so one of the examples you gave, I say I would say, one of the examples you gave, I thought was very interesting because it talks about truly the nuances of the person component. So one of the examples that Angela gave was when you're talking about colonoscopies and we look at disparities about the rates of colonoscopies based on people according to their race and why do those exist and how that influences our bias biases to potentially offer that said group of people or not not even offer because you may offer it but um, properly counsel that group of people uh, on getting a colonoscopy because the assumption is they're not going to get it anyway right Um, and so how do we not insert those biases when we start to associate um, behaviors um, with uh, and disease processes with um, race itself and not with the other confounding factors. There might not even be any confounding factors and you've just added one by assuming something based on somebody's race. So I thought that was um, a good way to look at it and actually trying to figure out how do we influence those systemic um, uh, biases that we do actually do on an individual level that are not so much um, we can't necessarily fix on when, when we do systemic, systemic interventions. Um, 
So my right, and I and I oh can I just comment on that? Oh yes, I was gonna say I was yeah offer you to talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean I think it's really interesting. I think that you know obviously anti-racism work and work in racial equity and health equity are vast fields, and I think you need everyone on every level. Um, and I found that my interest has really shifted away from individual bias. I noticed that you use the phrase like injecting bias in mm-hmm. the situations. You know, Denise uh, Marte, a medical student, did give that example about the colonoscopies. And for me, I, I think that is evident of a larger systemic belief that generalizes and sometimes makes race biologic and then it's passed down as teaching to trainees and faculty. So it's not really anybody's, you know, I don't want to say that people are blameless, but I think a lot of people when starting on anti-racism work start with unconscious bias and imperfect bias. And while it is really important to check your bias, my interest in starting this podcast and doing this work really came from, you know, like on my third year, like for anybody, I I could try to be the most anti-racist physician and do all the things that implicit bias workshops tell me to do. And, you know, the conversation if that's possible is a lengthy one in itself. I personally feel like the literature behind implicit bias is fairly flawed, um, but also acknowledge that it definitely exists. Um, but, you know, even if I don't believe in differences or inferiority or superiority between races or try to take my bias out of these interactions, the medical algorithms and the guidelines and the spaces continue to perpetuate inequity in a way that forces my hand. So an example of that that I didn't include in the podcast because I only found out about it this year is that there is, and yeah, actually you're an OBGYN, so you can tell me, there is um, that calculator about successful vaginal births after a C-section. Um, and it is not really used at this institution, um, but multiple fellows and residents have told me that they used it at their at their home previous institution. Um, so it's basically success rate of vaginal births after a C-section. And as we know, the success rate of vaginal births decreases after each section that you have. Um, but you could allow a patient to trial right on labor. And the calculator has a lot of like, I think great things you put in like previous C-section, like was that C-section indicated or emergent? Um, the weight of the person, and that is, I think, is complex in ways that I haven't myself gotten into. But then it does ask, like, African-American or Hispanic. And if you check yes for African-American, the percentage rate for a successful vaginal, vaginal birth drops by almost 10%. And if I think if you put Hispanic, it raises, like, a couple of percentage points. So I was really interested in this, right? I was like, does this rate relate back to the racist and untrue notion that black women have different pelvic anatomy. You look, I don't know where this is coming from. It's problematic, but I want to know why. So mm-hmm. I went to the paper and I read it. And again, I want to highlight that this is something that like I had to have the time to do. You know, I'm on this fellow year. I took an hour to read the paper um, and really comb through. And it ended up being that, uh, and there might be more to it, but in the paper, they just said, you know, we see these disparities, um, like black women are X percent less likely than white women um, to have su- successful vaginal births. So we are that in the calculator. Mm. So when you put it in, it drops the rate because that's what you see epidemiologically. But then right. kind of in the same way that not referring somebody to colonoscopy does, you are creating an indication for a C-section. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you're just perpetuating the cycle because I imagine if that patient gets a section, comes out pregnant, like then their rate drops even lower. And then you're just sectioning them every time after that, you know. So and I just felt like 
you know, I talked to a urogynecology fellow who was like, oh, we use that all the time. And she's in the health equity fellowship that I'm running this year. And she's just like, I understand that's really problematic. But the culture of my institution was such that if you didn't input race, you were like not being a good doctor. Right. Because it's like part of the medical puzzle for many people. And so I think that is really what I'm interested in mm-hmm. is like the racist notions that just persevere so deep in our system that it just overwhelms you. And as an individual, like there's no, there's not really much you can do to overcome that really systemic um, predisposition against, against people of color. I, um, so it's interesting. So yes, I know that the, the VBAC calculators exist um, and, and they were used maybe at one of the institutions that, that I was um, affiliated with. I did, I've never actually used one. Um, but I did not know that, uh, that that race was part of the calculator. That is quite interesting. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, and let's go back to your point. So, um, I, and I think I probably wasn't as clear as I was trying to be, but yes, I agree with you. I do, um, my, my point was not to say that our interventions are, uh, or should be directed towards individuals to, uh, to imply that if we get rid of individual level implicit or whatever kind of bias we want to talk about, that we will solve the problem. I think I was just trying to give the example of how when we teach, when we when it's systemic on how it will play out on an individual level, and it's it's we're not even realizing it because we've been taught these kind of intertwined thoughts. Um, around racism and when well, should say around racism around race and medicine right um yeah so yes so yes i'm definitely tracking with you i think we're, we're kind of on the same page and and it's also interesting i kind of you know like you and trying to sort those things out as a medical student um and and really kind of understanding the when you're taught certain things in a context with um especially in majority institutions when there are not a lot of people who look like you in your class or there are not a lot of people who look like you are teaching you. Um, And so trying to have the conversations with the uh, faculty members and that type of thing can sometimes be challenging, right? Um, Because I think, uh, you know, most people are well-intentioned and they're, you know, when you start using the word racism, which we do a lot now, like even you talk about anti-racism training and the people that you're in fellowship with. Um, it's a it's a different space to have those conversations now than even 10 years ago, 15 years ago when I was in training. Um, and I think I shared this example with you when we were talking before, you know, when we had a, uh, it was, a, I had a, uh, I think it was a microbiology infectious disease type of test. Um, and and say, say there were 50 multiple choice questions. I don't remember how many questions were on the test but there was only one question on the whole test um, where the STEM included race. And the question was about um, undercooked pork and what bacterial disease or infection that you might've got from that. Um, and so I, I was bothered by that. And I asked the professor and I said, you know, you know, why did you include race on this particular question and you didn't include it on the other ones? Um, and she was like, well, I thought that was important <laughs> to the, you know, the answer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, I was like, but I don't see how. I said, if you had included race on all the questions, that would have been, you know, better or none of the questions, right? But you picked this particular question with this particular context to give a race. And I said, do you, you know, um, 
do you see an issue with that? And, you know, how does that, you know, what message is that giving to the students and yada, yada, yada. And so we had a very long conversation, ended up having a conversation with, I think, like, I don't know, our, our students for deans or our dean of uh, student affairs or something like that. But it was a really hard conversation, right? Um, and she, it gave me a lot of pushback. She didn't think there was anything wrong with it. She didn't see how it would make me feel uncomfortable. She didn't see how it might not set the right precedence, you know, in in an education standpoint. So I said all this to say, so one of your, you, you also had a conversation with one of your uh, professors, right? Um, about some of uh, one of his presentations. So my question is, um, what, you know, how do you encourage um, not just your students, but how do you have these conversations with faculty members to try to push the change, to change the conversation? Oh, I mean, it's, you hit on a lot of, I think, themes that are really, that make it really inherently tough in a dynamic, dynamic that inherently also has a power differential. Right. Um, so to give your listeners a bit of background, I ended up having a conversation with a Parkinson's uh, professor, a lecturer who works on movement disorders, including Parkinson's. And um, I, I bookended my podcast with this narrative that I had tried to do research on health disparities in Parkinson's. There just weren't enough patients of color in our nationwide database for me to even do any analyses. Um, and I think I didn't really know why. I think at the time I was in Baltimore and I knew some of it must have had to do with distrust of the medical system and the history behind experimentation with black and brown bodies and that made sense to me. And then in our brain sciences lecture, this professor um, had the slide that said that Parkinson's occurs more in, uh, he said the word Caucasian, um, then then, and that was more than Asian people, and that was more than African people, I think was the, the hierarchy there. And that to me was also like, oh, this is how the knowledge is created, right? People are taking the epidemiology and then they're using it to say that this is just the predisposition, right? People don't know why there's a disparity, and many people will ascribe it to a genetic or predisposition uh, to or um, against the condition. So I felt really uncomfortable because uh, in my mind, it was fairly, the link between the disparities in health in Parkinson's diagnoses, if it's the clinic or care, was very clearly linked to social factors. Um, mm -hmm. We talked about the mistrust of the medical system. Um, you could talk about health literacy that cuts across all races, um, but you could also talk about perhaps implicit bias playing into that, like doctors referring less to specialists, explaining symptoms less to patients and thus not equipping them with the right health literacy tools. Um, you could talk about certain cultural notions and different cultures so that my grandparents believe that um, a lot of symptoms are just signs of aging. Um, They're Chinese. Um, it doesn't mean that all Chinese elders feel that way, but it is pretty common, I think, in immigrant elder populations. Um, and so for me, I was like, I think genetics is the last place I would look. Uh, and so after interviewing everyone about ways to approach conversations, I just felt like I couldn't leave without talking to him. So it was really hard. I think um, the best, like the starting out advice I usually give to people is, oh, and I, and I hate to say this because it really plays on the trope of like medical student, but, and so you can either like, 
like be curious, like play curious or and play uh, a little bit naive, right? Like <laughs> somebody says uh, Parkinson's is more common in white people or somebody says like, you know, black people just don't feel as much pain or it even extends to like other microaggressions, right? Like, oh, like this patient's just hysterical, right? And you kind of just mm-hmm. say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, and you really make them work for it. That's the first step usually. And I think it's hard depending on what context you're in because at Brown, I think the what do you mean by that has been so widely adopted that it holds the same kind of connotation as a confrontation anyways. Mm. Right. So, so then you went into that problem. And then what I found was really interesting was that when I tried to have conversations that revolved around identity politics, like, you know, race is social, you can't group people like that. Um, unless they were well-versed in somebody like Dorothy Roberts, I think it very much took on an air of like, oh, well, you're a student at this really liberal institution. Like you really like are so careful about your language, but like we're taking care of patients, right? And like, it doesn't impact their care or, you know, kind of like what you're most, like, why does it matter, you know? Mm-hmm. And I recently have found, you know, so Audre Lorde has this, writing where she says like you can't dismantle the master's health the master's tools mm-hmm. and like I, I firmly believe in that but I also feel like sometimes you just gotta use their tools so we me and the previous fellow in my position and then the previous fellow before her the three of us have co-facilitated this session for um for the health equity fellows that we have and it basically goes into the methodology of all the algorithms that are race-based mm. so pulmonary function tests uh, GFR and the different algorithms we use, FRAX for osteoporosis. Um, we could certainly do like ASCVD for cardiovascular, but there's so many algorithms that use race. And we really approach it from like a critical methodology view without race at all. And I feel like that's where I'm trying to go and see if it works is, you know, the underlying studies that underlaid the position paper that created the algorithm for the different GFR calculations are based off of these really small studies with really small ends that are not consistently defined on what they mean by race, which if you compare it to any other clinical variable is not really acceptable in scientific research. You know, I, part of the reason I don't really love like basic science research and clinical research is hard for me to grasp is like everything has to be so exact and so defined and like you have to be airtight. And that is something that I, with a skill set that I was interested to grow but really struggled with. And here is like, oh, well, you know, this study got raced this way, and this study got raced this way, and this study wasn't sure what to do with biracial individuals. And then this other study only identified Hispanic individuals by their last name um, <laughs> and didn't go by ethnicity, right? And you're just like, oh, like, do you know that some people marry and change their names? Do you know that yeah. Spain colonized a bunch of different countries? And so, if you're Philip of like Filipino or Filipino descent, like you might have a Spanish sounding last name, but not be Hispanic at all. Right. right? And so when you look into these studies that underlie these racial algorithms, it's, I think it becomes very clear that they're really antiquated notions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I brought that to my sub eye and we have this instance with Fidel, um, which is like a heart failure drug given only to black Americans was in a study that only studied black people Found, um, funded by the pharma company that sold the drug. So in all forms, like in any other study, it would be like, I think, kind of a problematic study to base such a large conclusion off of. Um, and because I'd done all this work, I was able to kind of counter my attending 
and resident on rounds from a very like data evidence-based standpoint, right? Like Fido may be efficient in this patient because she's black. Um, and also, like I would argue against the use of Fido in this race-based manner because of the methodology in the study that was flawed. And it went over better. Um, mm -hmm. We did eventually get to uh, them saying, you know, what a medical student thing to say. You know, the old data, we don't really teach it, even though they had just taught it to me. <laughs> and then the next week taught it again. So, I, you know, I don't know. It's that's not a perfect example of how it could go. But I, I definitely felt like my perception in that moment, I felt way more empowered. Right. But it's a big ask for people to go and do that research and like do the review and dig into the papers, you know. So I'm trying to create this like cross-institutional collaborative like database of like quick facts on rounds. Um, that's kind of where I'm headed with this, but I think back to your original question about having conversational faculty, it is so difficult because you're in a power differential. I think the underlying rules are like, play curious, um, like try to like meet them where they're at. And in the end, like it's not really your job, you know, like you're, as for me, at least I'm a student, like if you're tired or scared of retribution, um, then I think your own like well-being comes you have to prioritize that like you can't pick every battle because racism is every day all the time in healthcare. yes that is a very true statement um <laughs> and it can be exhausting yeah. um you know and and i do think i mean you are trying to get through the training process and so i i think if any you know any of you in training who maybe listen to this week i don't think the sentiment that you should get is that you want to pick all the battles all the time but um when there is something that can, you know, lends itself to conversation, um, just be a little curious, like you said, and maybe just ask the question. And it's a lot of these things. There's no quick fixes. This, you know, it, this is not a magic. We're not going to find a magic um, solution in the next, you know, six months. This is something that took centuries to, you know, to construct, and it's going to take a long time to um, try to bring back to some. Um, I wanted to say correct, but to try to bring it back um, to a more equitable place. Um, but I think the important thing is to have the conversation and, and that's hasn't been what we've been doing very often. So I do encourage people to continue to do that. Um, and the other thing I, you know, I think we should at least address is, you know, we, when um, I'm sure there's going to be some pushback around, well, you know, we have to, we have to include race and have a conversation about race and, and, in this country because there are um the history the history of our country makes it important right um mm -hmm. and i think uh, there have been some well-intentioned strategies around make like like so if we give a, a very practical example and we talked you talked to touch a little bit about being in baltimore and wondering why you know black people aren't included in studies and is it some of it because of distrust of the medical system because of historically um either being left out or misused or abused or you know lots of inappropriate things happened over time and so then you know in making sure we're trying to swing the other way and making sure that we have um, minority and small populations included in research so that we are having a better representative sample of the U.S. so that we can apply, um, you know, uh, evidence-based medicine to large populations. We don't want to then take that data and then single out, you know, this small group of people and say, well, you know, 
this applies to the whole population. And so I think it's trying to get those nuancey things and not using the data that we use um, in an inappropriate or not for its intended use with the information. So we need the data, we need demographics about people, but we need to use them in an appropriate way. And so I think that's gonna be, again, um, a work in progress to say the least. Well, yeah, and, and I think I love that you brought that up because I think a lot of um, pushback, like you're saying, against this line of thinking and this area of work is um, I've had people, you know, come up to me and other people in this field, both my like fellow students and trainees and faculty, and be like, well, are you saying that genetics doesn't exist, or you saying that blue doesn't exist, or are you denying what the whole field of epidemiology, or like, <laughs> are you advocating a race for race, like colorblind medicine? And it's like, no, like we aren't. Like I think, um, I think it's a really nuanced, really sticky topic, like because race is a really nuanced, really sticky topic. And, you know, I think to kind of address those one by one, it's like, A, of course there is genetic variation across populations. Um, they just don't fit neatly within our six socially defined races. Um, Dorothy Roberts has a really great chapter about this in her book, Fatal Invention. Um, in terms of prevalence, like yes, of course, some diseases are more prevalent in like this one place in this one area, but we have to consider that like humans are migrating and intermating and what that means and just be cognizant of that. Um, you know, I think there, Dorothy Roberts also writes about like the ancestry um, tools, like the one for like black people to find their ancestors in Africa. And she really breaks that down and is like, well, we don't really like know, you know, you can only trace it to people who are living in that country today in Africa. Mm. And it's only a small sample of people. And so it's just extrapolating widely out. So I like want to make clear that it's not denying the existence of genetic variability or prevalence and also um, not advocating for colorblind medicine. I think my perfect solution to the conversation with my professor about Parkinson's would have been instead a slide that acknowledges disparities in Parkinson's because it does exist and questioning what are the social factors. You know, instead he took it out and I think like that's definitely one way to go about it. Um, I think that is better than having it in. Um, I hope that someday he comes to this other conclusion, but you know, that was what happened after our conversation. But I think, like you said, like it's really important to study the impact of racism on medicine um, because race is such a powerful divider in this country. Um, if you are perceived to be a non-white person, like your health outcomes are different. And so I don't, I just don't know how you capture that in like an algorithm, right? So if you use a cardiovascular calculator and you put in race knowing that you're putting it in not because your patient is black and more predisposed to heart disease but because you know that black americans in the u.s experience x amount of racism that fundamentally changes how their body reacts then would that be an appropriate use of the algorithm like i don't know i think the discussion is really like rich in this area um and I think it's like, it is important to study the social construct of race in medicine. But right now we're not doing that. You know, there's 500 more times um, the funds by NIH to study genetic underlying um, mechanisms of disease than there is to study structural determinants of health and solutions to that. So I think that tells you where our priorities in this country lie. 
um, and why that conversation hasn't yet shifted to studying the social concept of race and race in medicine. Um, and so that's why I think it sounds like we're advocating for race and colorblind medicine. Right. Um, well, with that, I'd like to <laughs> try to shift to a little more optimistic tone. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of these conversations <laughs> I know are just, you know, they're, they're powerful topics and important topics, but you know, they're also pretty heavy topics. And, um, but I, I did want to ask you in, in, in looking towards your future and your career, um, and you've touched on it a little bit of, about kind of what you're thinking, but uh, what, you know, what are you optimistic about? What are you, what are you hopeful about going forward? Where do you see your career taking you? And, um, and, you know, how do you plan on incorporating your, you know, your health equity work um, as you, you know, go on to residency and um, academics, maybe, sounds like maybe. So what do you think of? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, what's been really hopeful is meeting people in EDI work. And a lot of my peer peers in my old medical school class are now interviewing and I get to hear their experience on the interview trail in many different specialties. And a lot of them are interested in EDI. So I think hearing the number of programs that are really making strides on this is exciting. I wish we had a chance to connect more because I think the work is kind of being repeated at all these different institutions. Mm -hmm. um, I'll let you know, a separate conversation. I love bridge building. It's like my favorite thing to do. My favorite thing to do is host like a party with people people who don't know <laughs> each other and then they get to meet and connect. So like of it. course, that's where my mind goes. Um, so I'm interested in MedPeds. Um, and I'm interested in GI. And I think for a long time, I was really struggling with this. I think one of the reasons, in addition to what we talked about, that I loved OBGYN was I think people hear that I'm interested in health disparities and structural equity and all of these buzzwords. And they say, well, you know, you sound like you're really interested in primary care. You know, like you would be perfect mm -hmm. in primary care. And like, no, you know, I love my primary care doctor. I think family med is like one of the hardest specialties. I don't oh, know how do they keep it all in their head and <laughs> manage to like learn how to inject cortisone shots and deliver a baby and like give good counseling on mood. Like I'm just blown away by them. Um, <laughs> and like, I was like, but I'm drawn towards specialty care. You know, I love the hospital. I love these like procedures. I love depth of knowledge. Um, and actually it was Dr. Damon Tweedy who came to Brown and gave this really amazing lecture. Um, he's author of Black Man in a White Coat. And I remember he said, he's a psychiatrist, right? And he was just like, people kept pushing me towards primary care because I was interested in this and he's a black man. And so there's all these pressures on him. And he was just like, these disparities exist everywhere. And I would argue that specialties often sometimes need these people more mm. um, if you care about them. And so for me in GI, like I'm really interested in like infect, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. I'm really interested in the transition care uh, when kids leave their clinic where they ideally get like wraparound, really like holistic, like healing centered care um, that acknowledges like any trauma they've had um, or, um, you know, have a dietitian and a psychiatrist and a social worker and they turn 21 and then they get kicked out and they get kicked out to the other clinic where they're like you really know how to eat healthy and you know how to cope like all you need is like Remicade you know and so and that's just not true like I would love a wraparound service clinic you know I think adults just need like kid level care um and and I'm interested in when people think disparities and try to think colon cancer screenings and I think that's like a really interesting topic um but i'm really interested in the ways in which like 
And I don't know this is where I would focus, but one of the things I find really interesting about GI is interplay with the mind and the body and the microbiome. Mm. And I feel like anecdotally, and I'm sure it's not on the research, that um, white women and people of color often are more to be diagnosed with like a functional etiology of the abdominal pain. And it very well might be. I think every organic etiology has a functional etiology on top because our mind is so connected to our pain. Um, and like sometimes they get underdiagnosed with things that are really serious and could have treatments like Crohn's or like ulcerative colitis. Um, And I think like, you know, it's just like the medicine and GI is food. And I think like how amazing is that to be able to work with your patient around like a lifestyle and um, like working with them on their diet. So that's where I think I want to go with this. Um, I came into med school interested in healthcare journalism. Um, And at that point I was more interested in like responsibly portraying science to the public you know if I see one more headline about like this life-saving drug that's in like the phase one safety <laughs> phase of a clinical trial like yeah. we have that at least you start calling our office you know when I was in Parkinson's being like can I be prescribed this drug my PI had to be like no like they just tested around eight people you know like right. it, it just creates so much like misinformation in the public um so some more thing I can combine all of those things like clinical work and this kind of like advocacy in journalism. I didn't ever think actually that I would be this entrenched in medical education or like equity, like diversity, equity and inclusion work. Um, And I don't know how that'll fit in later, but I am so grateful to have had this year. And I think it definitely will shape how I move forward. And like, I can definitely see getting involved in like EDI efforts at my institution, wherever I go. Well, I'd like to thank you again for talking with me. This has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot from you and um, I'm very um, optimistic, for lack of a better word, um, that there are, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you're not the only one, right? But there are more of you coming up the pipeline that, um, you know, are interested in the topic, are learning about the topic and willing to have conversations about the topic. And I think, like I said earlier, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we just need to talk more about it and be more comfortable with it and, um, you know, try to work on changing things at all levels, you know, so having the conversations about the the, um, things that we can change on a system level, but also, you know, how do we, how do those play out on a, on a, um, patient to physician interaction as well and and making sure that we try to tease out all the things in between so um with with that um i will thank you and um hope that we will um, hear more from you in the future and um we look forward to your next podcast and like I, i mentioned earlier i'll put that link um and our listen notes so other people can listen to the full um, the full session because I think it was really good. And we look forward to seeing what you come up with next. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I think it's um, always a great time to reflect on these things. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, I still am a trainee at the beginning of my journey and like learning from people like you and learning from all that's already been done is has been really humbling. And I'm excited to, you know, keep working in this. Thank you so much, Angelo. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you.